0: Hi, my name is Dan Dick, host of Church Matters. Today we're going to put aside what was originally scheduled and respond to some listener feedback to our last episode. In that episode, you heard storyteller Soren Minnehawk retell a story in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, from the perspective of an indigenous person. Starting with verse 17, Jesus tells a man seeking eternal life that he must sell all that he has and give his money to the poor and follow Jesus. The perplexed disciples are listening to this conversation, and then Jesus says these famous words, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Soren paraphrased it this way, Friends, how hard it is for settlers to enter the Creator's way. To paraphrase Jesus the waymaker, It's easier to stuff a Nelson Rockefeller or a Nelson Rettacup through the deposit slot at Van City Bank than to get your average settler to embrace God's red road of justice and wealth redistribution. Soren's retelling got a lot of conversation going among Church Matters listeners, and we heard about it. That's a good thing, even if some of you disagreed with Soren's retelling of the Gospel story. Listeners also shared with us some of their impressions about Canada's First Nations people. So, we're going to spend some time today to respond to those impressions and others. My guest today is Steve Heinrichs. Steve is the Director of Indigenous Relations at Mennonite Church Canada. He's been a pastor to white and First Nations people. Steve is married and has three children. Welcome to Church Matters, Steve. Thanks for having me, Dan. Great to be here. Steve, you've spent a good portion of your life with Indigenous peoples and communities, so I'm going to put you on the firing line. Are you ready to respond to some of the popular assumptions and impressions white middle class folks have about Canada's First Nations?
1: I'm certainly no expert, still learning a lot, but I'm happy to share some of my experience, my thoughts, but hopefully also convey some of what Indigenous communities and friends are saying to these things. Perfect.
0: Let's start. Steve, on the news, we've seen nightly broadcasts of Idle No More protesters in cities and towns across Canada. What is it they're complaining about?
1: Well, recently the government passed a couple of omnibus bills that will have detrimental impact on the environment. One of them strips federal protection on more than 99% of Canada's waterways. Indigenous peoples are upset about this, like many non-natives because they're deeply concerned about the environment, especially given the current climate crisis we're in. But Indigenous peoples are also upset because no one's consulted them. These waterways, they're all in traditional native territories. And according to the Constitution of Canada, whenever Canada wants to do something that's gonna affect traditional native territories, they have a duty to consult native peoples. Did anyone consult non-Native people? I don't know how many non-Native peoples were consulted. I know that a lot of non-Native organizations, environmental groups, were deeply upset about this because of the impact they they perceive it having.
0: So we're really talking about a broken promise here when it comes to this failure to consult. Exactly. Okay, so there's a lot of impressions out there that uh, tell me that people think Natives have a lot of special privileges, that they get a better deal than the rest of us. Uh, People say they get free housing, they get free education, they don't have to pay taxes. Those are benefits a lot of us would like to have but don't get because we're not Native.
1: Yeah, that's a good question, something I hear a lot. Um, But let's break it down. First, I don't think most Native peoples would refer to health care, education, and tax benefits as special privileges that they get, but more so as treaty rights. Most of Canada is treaty land, which means that the Canadian governments, when when the crown first came into these lands, they negotiated settlements with the original governments, the original peoples of this land. And during that negotiation, in exchange for settler peoples having access to land and to resources to settle in these lands, they promised to give First Nations peoples certain things. And amongst those promises were education, health care, and no taxes on reserve lands. So these are part of the covenant promises.
0: Okay. I just want to pick up on that brief comment about no taxes on reserve
1: land. So are there conditions to this negotiated agreement? Yeah. When it comes to taxes, uh, the great myth is that first nations people don't have to pay taxes wherever they are in Canada. That's not the case. Non-status First Nations peoples have to pay taxes, income tax. Okay,
0: Steve, you're using the term status Indian. Can you explain what that means?
1: Uh, Status peoples, um, well, I'll take it personally. I have two uh, Native daughters in my home. They aren't recognized by the government as belonging to particular peoples, even though that they're Native kids, one Natalnath, one Stahl. They don't qualify whatsoever.
0: So your kids wouldn't qualify for free education in the same sense as other Native on-reserve kids would?
1: Well, I was doing a little checking into how much uh, the government spends giving non-Native people's benefits. One example would be primary education where non-Native children receive about $10,000 per year to support their education, whereas Indigenous kids would receive about $7,000.
0: Over the years, Steve, Canada has poured billions of dollars into Aboriginal communities, and yet we continue to hear that the on-reserve Indian population is among the most impoverished in Canada. Study after study tells us that they rank as the poorest across all main measures of physical health, life expectancy, HIV, AIDS, diabetes rates, education, incarceration, suicide, substance abuse, the list just goes on. Has all that money fixed nothing?
1: I think it would be too simplistic to say all that money has gone to rot. I think it has um, helped in in various circumstances. To put this into perspective though, the actual number is around $5.5 billion that the federal government spends on Aboriginal peoples each year. The mining companies that are resource extracting native territories alone pay $9 billion a year in royalties and taxes to the federal government. So we should ask, who is supporting who in this relationship? Clearly, what's coming out of Native territories, there's a lot more coming out of it than is going back into it, supporting Native peoples. But has this money fixed nothing? I think for the most part, the money is addressing symptoms rather than the sickness. It's like going to a doctor and saying um, the doctor's treating instead of the cancer that is eating up the body is addressing symptoms, hair loss, uh, dry skin, um, eyesight, vision go- going poorly rather than the cancer. And so I think w- what I hear from most indigenous peoples is that the government needs to empower indigenous peoples to implement their own solutions, their ideas as to how to become healthy and whole societies again. For the most part, it's the Canadian government trying to apply their solutions to native peoples and to fix the native problem. And we've been doing this for a long time. hundred years ago, it was church and state working together in residential schools up until 1996, saying, we'll help fix the problems by making them good Christian children. Today, the two-pronged approach is we need to educate, and a lot of Indigenous peoples are up on that. The second um, solution is to bring them into the resource extraction economy. Let's get them jobs in those mines, the pipelines, the forestry industry, and all this. A lot of Native peoples are reticent to go into that form of economy.
0: Steve, I just want to be clear. When you refer to the government, you're not necessarily talking about just the government of the day, but historic Canadian governments. Indeed. I'm the son of immigrant people. My great grandparents arrived with virtually nothing. My grandparents and my parents had to earn their way through the world. I grew up poor. My dad held down more than two jobs often throughout many years to feed his family. Why shouldn't we all be equal?
1: I don't think we need to try to take anything away from immigrant peoples who have uh, carved out a life in Canada, who have worked hard. We, I think we can honor that. That's my story as well. That's my parents and my grandparents coming to this land and working hard. I think we have to be honest though, in saying they didn't simply do it all on their own. They were also helped by communities, whether it be the church community, whether it be the government as community providing assistance, For example, think about Mennonites coming to the southern Manitoba region. They were given a reserve in the 1880s, a huge section of land that was bestowed upon them. That was a privilege given to them. Why did they receive that special privilege? And many of the Cree-Métis people that were living there actually had to be removed
0: But the argument that I hear back, Steve, is that they did something with that land. It's productive farmland. They're earning their lives and livelihoods off that land now.
1: And I want to acknowledge that they have done something with that land. They have. That's not to say that traditional peoples – Native peoples weren't doing something with that land. They had lived sustainably for thousands and thousands of years in these places. Steve,
0: I've heard people say that the real problem is that natives are lazy. And and maybe if they learned a better work ethic, like many Mennonites, they'd be much better off. The apostle Paul said, if they don't work, they don't eat. Canadian Senator Patrick Brazeau, a native person himself, said that some aboriginals simply expect to live on the taxpayer's tab, quote, to sit back, wait for the government to give handouts to drink and take up drugs. But the best way to get our land back is to buy it back, just like every other Canadian, unquote. Why can't natives simply take responsibility for themselves like so many other Canadians?
1: Well, many indigenous peoples, including those within the I Don't Know More movement, would say, Uh, We recognize that there are problems of dependency, uh, uh, a welfare mentality amongst many within our communities. They're not denying that. But they're asking settler society, mainstream Canadians, to grapple with the reasons for why that might be the way it is. Settler societies in Canada, America, Philippines, Algeria, and other places have suggested things like it's because natives are culturally backwards that they're inherently lazy. Or it's because there's something, this is even more heinous, biologically deficient about native peoples that makes them that way, not as sturdy a people as like Mennonites. Indigenous peoples ask us to grapple with the history, to understand why realities are the way they are right now. When I was pastoring up in Northern BC, I lived next to a, a carrier people. The reserve community was Tachat. That community was a proud, hard-working community before settler peoples came into that area. Then they took away their access to the rivers because there were a number of canneries at the end of the Skeena River that they wanted to have all the salmon for. Then they took away their access to the lands, made it crown land all around them. Then they took the children away to residential schools. Then missionaries, well-intended, came into that place and said, all your traditions, all your spiritual ways are evil. Given all these things, the peoples struggled. They had no means of caring for themselves. They were invited to participate in agriculture and other things. They weren't farmers. And that place actually isn't very good for farming. And so they became dependent. Whose fault is that?
0: Steve, in the Soren Mennohawk version of Mark 10 that we presented in the last episode of Church Matters, the character of Charlie is the Jesus figure. Charlie tells the Mennonite to go and redistribute his wealth to the marginalized natives. Now, I think some listeners took that to understand that the Mennonites were getting all the blame for the plight of native people why should mennonites or any christian for that matter give their wealth and resources to native people when the government is already giving 5.5 billion dollars a year
1: well i know soren and i don't think he was trying to pin the blame on mennonites he loves mennonites uh he's a mennonite himself um i think he was simply trying to prick our conscience and get us to reread that gospel story so we can have maybe a better understanding of what jesus was trying to share in that text. When Soren and I read that text, I see a couple of things that Jesus is inviting us to. One, he's not simply calling uh, rich or middle-class Mennonites or Christians like myself to give in acts, acts of charity towards the poor, but he's calling us to a solidarity with the poor, to share all that we have. Jesus' vision is, is one where We all have things in a common purse. Native peoples, when treaties were first being signed in this place, they would often use the analogy of the bowl with one spoon. We're all gathered around the table together. We're sharing all that we have in this land, all the gifts and resources together. That's kind of Jesus' vision. He's saying there should not be uh, disparities between rich and poor. There should be equality Enough for everyone. If we look at that 5.5 billion that you quoted, that's a very small portion of the wealth that's in the bowl. Nine, mil- $9 billion are coming from the mining industry alone back to the federal government. Who's supporting who here? $1.2 trillion, it's estimated, will come from the tar sands in the next 35 years. 1.2 in royalties, and taxes again it goes back to the bull and also jesus says if we look back at uh, mark 10 verse 20 jesus points out to the rich man not only is he supposed to honor the 10 commandments but he slips in this other command he says do not defraud he's pointing out to the rich man that probably some of his wealth comes from unjust means willingly or unwittingly And I think most of us would have to say the same is true for ourselves. If we consider, for example, our pension plans, a lot of that wealth actually comes from resource extraction industries in Canada and abroad, like the Philippines, like uh, South uh, America, that are getting wealth from indigenous lands, that the indigenous peoples in those lands aren't partaking in as much as us we're not sharing the spoon final question steve the mennonite
0: and soren Mennohawks retelling of mark 10 doesn't think the current aboriginal situation is at all related to long-gone historical injustices when does the past become the past i often hear can't i just get over it
1: and move on already and i often hear that too And there's a part of me that resonates with that question. But then when I look at it through uh, a Christian lens and I look at my gospel, I realize I'm putting my hope, as is the church, in the past, largely the past. The promises of Jesus' incarnation, God became flesh and walked amongst us 2,000 years ago, past events that we're all banking on. Jesus went to the cross and rose again. We're banking on that past event to promise a better future and to help us in the present. So our faith is intrinsically linked to the past. We, We should get the importance of the past for how it shapes today and tomorrow. Native peoples have a strong awareness of the past and how it shapes their present, and they hold to it and they present it back to us so that we can understand the lack of mutuality, the lack of respect that we're currently living in. And they're calling us to embrace what the treaty elders said long ago, which was that we are all cousins, the, the Cree word is Kichawamanawak, that we would live in a place of mutuality and respect. But until we're in that place of living as humans together, then Native peoples have the just right to present us with the past that keeps on shaping an unequal present. You used the word respect a few times in this last uh,
0: response to my question, and it seems to me that that's a good word to wrap up this interview with, and it seems to me that there has been an accumulation of a lack of respect throughout this relationship between Natives and non-Natives in Canada. Do you have anything more to say about that?
1: I would simply say, uh, as a church, we're called into radically respectful, loving relationships. When I read the stories of Jesus, I see him moving out amongst his own people. If if, if Jesus was a Mennonite, he's going next door to that Sumerian reserve and he's connecting there and bringing his disciples along and saying, how do we create respectful relationships here? He's preaching in his home church about peoples to the north of him that his congregation didn't like so much. And he's saying, in order for us to be a people of God, we need to learn how to respect them, to know their stories, the way that God's been with them and is walking with them too. Steve,
0: thanks so much for coming in and tackling these questions for us. I'm sure your responses are going to keep the conversation going for some time. Thank you so much for having me. That concludes today's program. Join us again next episode for another challenging edition of Church Matters. Whether you agree or disagree with what you hear at this spot, we hope you can support Church Matters. Please consider making a gift to Mennonite Church Canada so that we can continue to tackle the issues of the day. To give, just call 1-866-888-6785 or visit MennoniteChurch.ca. My name is Dan Dick, and you've been listening to Church Matters. Know that you are called, equipped, and sent to be the church in the world today. Thanks for listening.